Unlocking Your World of Creativity with best-selling author and brand innovator, Mark Stinson. Mark introduces you to some of the world's leading creative talent from publishing, film, music, restaurants, medical research, and more. You'll discover how to tap into your most original thinking, how to organize your ideas, and most of all, how to make the connections and create the opportunities to launch your creative work. Unlocking your world of creativity. Welcome back, friends, to our podcast, Unlocking Your World of Creativity. Today, we're going to be stamping our creative passport in Atlanta and leaving the airport, driving up the road a bit with our friend, David Knorr. David, welcome to the program. Mark, it is good to be with you. And this I'm really curious about unlocking your, your world of creativity. So thanks for having me. Well, you're going to share some keys, I know. Dave is author, business coach, and advisor to so many people. And David wrote The Curve Benders, which we're really going to talk about the reinvention of work, but also a couple of other great books, Co-Create and Relationship Economics. I love the clash of those two words, and I know we're going to get into that a bit more. David, as we start our conversation, this idea of reinventing work is on the front of people's minds right now. I mean, it's just not going to be the same world, is it? It really isn't. And, and Mark, I, I share with a lot of friends that I'm, um, that I'm bullish on the trends this global pandemic has accelerated, and I'm bearish on the trends it's trying to change. Mm. So let me give you an example. What does that mean? If you think about working from home, or as a matter of fact, I should call it WFX because working has now become from anywhere and everywhere and X marks the spot, right? Many of us, I've been working from home for 20 years. So that mm. really wasn't a, a big deal to me but organizations that had people come in each and every day in an office building were in many ways paralyzed because now all these people suddenly had to go work from home. And what we figured out was in a fascinating way, it, this grand experiment actually worked. And not only people worked more, which is again, makes you concerned about you know, sustainability of it, but there were more in their element, particularly knowledge workers, right? If you're manufacturing, yeah, people have got to come in an assembly line and all that kind of stuff. But as knowledge workers, we got really good. And by the way, if I want to go for a lunchtime walk with my wife, or if I want to have my dogs on my feet, or you know, if I want to go get it, a client of mine did this, bought an RV, drove from Southern California to Maine mm-hmm. with his entire family because he was working from home. His wife's working from home. Kids are learning from home. Like if that's the case, I could be anywhere. Then take the home with you. And by the way, they're selling the house in Southern California now. Because they're like, if we're going to do this, why not see this amazing country of ours, right? So that's an example of a trend that the pandemic accelerated. And you're exactly right. It is redefined for the student leaders. It is redefining, reimagining, reinventing in some ways what it means to work. So several of my clients are now piloting four-day work weeks. And that's not about shoving you know, five days into four. It's about let's re-examine. Let's really think about why we're doing this. Other clients are not renewing their corporate office spaces because we figured out last 18 months that we don't need as much. And the ones we have, we're going to use as hoteling space, but they're standing up pods. What they figured out was, you know, employees move to different places. As a matter of fact, 22 million people changed counties last year. That's about 2 million more than average. And a lot of them have reconnected maybe with their roots in the Midwest or they've reconnected mm-hmm. with, if I'm going to get paid to work from anywhere, why do I need to live in a high rent district, right? And I'm mm-hmm. going to go do some other things. So that's an example of evolution of work that I'm very much bullish on. Bearish on trends, the pandemic is trying to change, which is we're never going to meet in person again. 
I just, I don't believe that. And, and as interesting as technology is getting every day, it still doesn't replace you and I meeting in person. Right. And shaking hands and looking at each other eye. And so what I fear is what I call the dinosaur leadership that is still thinking we're going to go back to anything. And they're not going to learn from this pandemic, the incredible lessons that is taught all of us. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's great that you kind of this clash of the technology and the person to person. I mean, clearly you've worked with companies and executives from technology companies like Cisco and HP and IBM and so forth, but also think about entertainment at Disney or uh, hospitality at Marriott. They, they depend on the face-to-face and yet still they're going to be reinventing as well, right? I, I believe so. And, and again, for your audience, uh, they may or may not know this, but the current org structure that many of us work within, its origins come from World War I. <laughs> Command and control is a military term. So those boxes that we shove people in or the packages that we shove talent into is, is clearly antiquated. And I don't know about you, I'm not using a whole lot of other things from World War I in my life. Not a lot. So I cringe when I hear people say, we're going to do an annual strategic planning because strategy is not a calendar driven anything. It is an, it's, a, it's an opportunity to think and, and imagine and reinvent. And beyond the lives and the livelihoods that this pandemic has impacted, I genuinely believe it to be an impetus to do just that, rethink, reimagine, reinvent what we do, how we do it. And, and again, I'm, work, I'm blessed to work with some really visionary leaders who are piloting microenterprises, who are piloting some really interesting approaches that says, huh, I wonder if there's a better way, if there's a different way for us to accomplish the outcomes we're after, not just the output. Who cares about that report? I don't care about the report. What I care about is the actual insights from that report. Mm-hmm. So how do we, again, measure, focus, compensate, this incredible talent that's within every one of our organizations on the outcomes they create, not the output. Yes. And, you know, you, you talk about the, the idea of piloting and words like reinvent and reimagine. You know, sometimes people think strategy, well, we did it. We have a strategy. Let's just execute and we're done. But you're also talking about this piloting, try something, change it, try again, go a different way. What are you seeing in terms of strategic thinking? with the people you're working with? Yeah, I, I, um, in Curvebenders, I wrote an entire chapter on organization of the future. And Mark, um, I'm blessed to work with some really mature companies in mature industries, right? So these globally recognizable brands. And if you think about their core business, and you brought up Disney, so let's just take Disney for a second, right? It's their core business, entertainment, theme parks, you know, production, facility, animation, so on and so forth. It's a proven business model. Is led by steadfast leadership, and the governance of it is very much based on risk mitigation, right? And it's a very traditional org structure. In that environment, in any mature environment where you've proven a, a repeatable, predictable execution model, I, my supposition is it is very difficult to innovate. Now, you can iterate, which is how do we do things, the same things better? But to me, real innovation and not innovation theory, not, not you know, stamping something as innovation just because it's cool or sexy or putting lipstick on that peg because it's somebody's pet project. But real innovation is doing new things. If you do enough of that, you'll stumble onto what I believe is disruption, which is doing new things that makes the old obsolete. So if if you think about that core business, 
every metric, every compensation, every promotion, in essence, every rung of that corporate ladder is based on your obedience, if not abiding by the existing structure, rules, all of that, that doesn't lend itself to, here we go, a culture of experimentation. Mm -hmm. So the work that I do, and I believe the evolution of the organizations and real innovation is going to come from, we call it a sandbox engine. And this is exactly what I do with several visionary leaders away from that corporate structure, away from that corporate governance, away from all that we know today to create an environment where similar to a venture capital firm, we go bet on 10, let's just say, business model innovations, not just innovative products and services. The core can do that. The core can, Disney comes up with more, you know, imagineering rides and, and it does some amazing products and services. But in terms of business model innovation, it is really difficult for the core to do that. And by the way, the biggest threat to every business is not necessarily a product or service, it's business model innovation. So Marriott, Hilton, Intercontinental were all clients. None of them saw Airbnb coming mm -hmm, mm -hmm. because Airbnb doesn't have the baggage, the capital assets, the hotels, the properties that they staff and employees and all that, that the traditional hospitality firms do. So business model innovation, really difficult to get right. None of us have a crystal ball. None of us know which ones are going to succeed. So the only way to do it is make 10 bets, knowing that eight will go nowhere. But Mark, the two that hit right. are going to be, in essence, the future of the core business. And that's what I'm seeing. That's what I get excited about. And full disclosure for you and your audience, I don't need 50 clients. Mm -hmm. I want to work with five. I want to work. And people ask me all the time, what are your more successful clients have in common? I've actually analyzed the data. And it's not size, it's not geography, it's not industry, it's not, it's the singular driver of real, sustainable, and enterprise value creation effort, initiative, change, is a visionary leader. Mm -hmm. It's that single individual who's not going to spend a lot of cycles defending the status quo, they're going to challenge it, and they're always asking, is there a better way? And they're willing to bring what I call the three C's to their innovation efforts. And I guess when you think about uh, the, the embodiment of those leaders, I, I dial the tape back to your relationship economics book and how you connect with those leaders and how the leaders connect with the right people to execute their vision. You're exactly right. And, and, and the reason I say that that visionary leader makes all the difference in the world is, is the visionary leaders I've, I've been blessed to know, Mark, uh, they have this knack for identifying and recruiting unbelievable talent. Mm -hmm. And they become crystal clear on their vision on where they're going and how they're going to get there. They don't have all the answers, but at least they have this nebulous version of the future they want to go pursue. And then would you believe they get out of the way? They go find <laughs> amazing people and they're like, okay, here's what, you know, and, and, I'm, and I'm reminded of, um, it was the lunar landing's 50th anniversary recently. Mm -hmm. and they interviewed one of the uh, astronauts. And his comment was JFK's vision of we're going to put a man on the moon in the next 10 years. The brevity, the clarity, the succinctness of that vision became a rallying cry. He, he didn't beat people overhead with a 178-page PowerPoint slide. He didn't need graphs and charts from the finance department. He didn't know and didn't have a clue into all the obstacles that were going to be in the way. But every leader I coach, I, since I, I, I tell them people cannot follow you if they don't know where the ship is headed. So a crystal clear vision of here's where we're going, 
Here's what I believe it's going to take to get us there. I may not know the exact path, but here's what it's going to take. Now, how do I go really surround myself with amazing people that are going to not just get us there, accelerate our ability to get there? Mm -hmm. And you've really painted this alternative universe picture of JFK with a PowerPoint slide. Uh, I won't be able to get that out of my mind. <laughs> it, yeah, yeah I, I, I'm just, I'm still baffled by, by leaders or organizations who measure the value of their ideas by its weight, mm -hmm. right? So, you know, no, no, 40, point, 40, 40 page PowerPoint can't, can't be really that good of an idea. You need 178 pages. <laughs> the and, more, the better. And by the way, I want to take you through in the next 30 minutes. Mm -hmm. And it's like, you lose me at hello. And I, I'm, I'm, I don't know when... We, we decided to just unnecessarily overcomplicate our businesses and our industries and our companies. And I'm not taking anything away from the complexity that's in some sure, of them. Sure. But if you can't articulate, if you cannot articulate, here's where we're going. Here's how we're going to get there. Here's what I believe it's going to take. Uh, what did Mark Twain said? If I had more time, I'd, I'd write a shorter letter. Yes, exactly. Right. So, so that, that enormous value in that brevity becomes refreshing when you hear mm -hmm. it, when you see it. A friend of mine calls brilliance something so obvious that's right in front of us that nobody's thought of before so true there and it's, it's 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 a leader's ability to simplify and clarify that makes them believable and and want to create an environment where people will do more than just show up and collect the paycheck they'll go through walls to put a man on the moon within 10 years yes exactly well david i'm also interested in your own creative journey your own path to get where you are today, born in Iran, then moved to the States and built businesses and built your practice and built a family. I'd love to hear that story. Yeah, I, I am the I'm the poster child for the American dream. I, I Mark, I got to tell you, I, I uh, a day doesn't go by that a I, I count my blessings too. I'm grateful for loving parents that that started it. And then I'll talk about some family here that made it all possible. But yeah, so I'm originally from Iran, you, you may recall the the um, the Shah had an exchange program where my parents are teachers, sent teachers abroad, and, and we went to Kuwait, and you know we were there, and, and the revolution happened, and they called them all back. My parents had the foresight to realize there wouldn't be a whole lot of future for me in Iran, so I've got a couple uh, uncles in Europe that said, no thanks. I had three here. A couple of them said, no thanks, too much responsibility. One of them said, I'll take them for the summer. So I came May 23rd, 1981 with a suitcase, hundred bucks, didn't know anybody, didn't speak a word of English. I literally landed JFK with a badge around my neck, put this kid on an Eastern airline flight to Atlanta and he doesn't speak any English. So I came here, lived with an aunt and uncle that I hadn't seen since birth. At the end of the summer, my American uh, aunt convinced my Persian uncle that if you send them back, it might as well be a death sentence because the Iran-Iraq war was going on. So in order to do that, my parents gave me up for adoption and an uncle adopted me. That's how I was able to stay here, get my green card, finish high school, finish my, I got an Eagle Scout that became an Eagle Scout and university. And uh, the part of the world I come from, it is driven into us very early on that education mm -hmm. is an investment in yourself that no one can ever take away from you. And it's quintessentially your path to a better life, your path to a different life. And, uh, and I, I, I took that sage advice to heart, undergrad, uh, grad school, uh, and then my career is in really three phases. Early on, it was technology, sales, sales management, marketing, business development. Then I went to consulting, 
and uh, uh, was president of a company and the private equity route. 19 years ago, I decided to go out on my own. And it's been a, an unbelievable ride. You were kind enough to mention, I'm now currently writing book number 12. Mm-hmm. And I'm blessed to work with, with global clients on really their, their innovation and net new growth opportunities. Wendy and I've been married 25 years. I have a 19-year-old daughter who's a second year at Georgia Tech. Go Jackets. And a 17-year-old son who we're doing college uh, uh, tours and trips and all this stuff um, for now. So It's exciting. And do you think, David, that this life experience that you've had gives you, like you said, you're the immigration uh, case study, but a more global view, a, a wider world vision appreciation that there's so much more, you know, stirred into the stew of life here and business. Yeah, I, I got to tell you, Mark, I, I'm fascinated by pre-pandemic. I think I read a stat that less than 47% of Americans had a passport. Mm-hmm. And I struggle in how any leader can have a, 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 a view of a, of a completely different part of the world that they know nothing about. And you're just not going to be able to. And, and I subscribe to Financial Times and I read The Economist. And you're not going to be able to read your way till you go to Dubai. Till yes. you go to Prague, till you go to Johannesburg, till you go to, and not just as a tourist, but go look for business opportunities, go open an office, go figure out. And, and here's the key part I want your audience to hear. The rest of the world builds relationships first from which they do business. As Americans or even Westerners, we're so focused on the business part that if and only if that part works, maybe we'll think about building relationships. Hence the disconnect when we go into places and people don't look like us, mm-hmm. sound like us, or come from our backgrounds. So if you genuinely want to elevate your brand as a leader, if you genuinely want to show up as a more empathetic leader, as a more compassionate leader, as a leader who listens louder, as I like to say, you, you've got to get out of the mahogany row <laughs> and get into the mail room. Mm-hmm. You got to get out of corporate. You got to get out of that really comfortable home office and go experience the texture of the rest of the world and the cultures of the rest of the world. And understand that in China, it's never about the meal. It's about a chance to get to know your genealogy and your background and why are you passionate about what you do. And all of that matters a heck of a lot more than any product or service. Yes. And in the Middle East, bin, like bin Laden, really bad example, but bin means the literal translation is son of. So your genealogy matters a heck of a lot more than any product or service. And the biggest mistake most Americans and our Western organizations make is they think they can parachute in that part of the world that's been doing business the same way for millennials. Mm -hmm. So if you don't have that context, you're going to walk in like a bull in a China shop. You're going to forget cultural assimilation. You're going to offend people. Uh, I, I distinctly remember my daughter was, I think she was like five years old. First time we took her to London. It's like, ooh, daddy, look, they drive on the wrong side of the road. <laughs> I'm like, no, honey, they drive on the other side of the road. Right. Just the word wrong gives it a whole different context. Because yes. that's all she knew. That's, that mm-hmm. was her only lens. So do you believe others are doing things wrongly or do you believe they do it very differently than we do? And I think as, as, as increasingly more businesses become global, as increasingly more businesses, look at this current supply chain woes. Mm-hmm. Right? I've got clients with, cargo sitting on ships at docks that they can't unload because there's no labor. I got clients that are air shipping industrial equipment 
because they can't get it here fast enough. You Again, you become dramatically more empathetic, more compassionate, more understanding with that broader worldview, not just at work, but also the way we live, the way we play, the way we give to others. I, I've, I've, I've hosted last story i promise <laughs> i've hosted uh, <laughs> no no don't say that <laughs> uh, last uh, so I've, I've hosted uh, interns from hong kong for five years and mark i gotta tell we don't we don't live in a massive home but to them they come to our home and they're like oh my god you live in a mansion i'm like it's a four bedroom five bedroom <laughs> house but again comparatively in hong kong you live in a one bedroom apartment and <laughs> and six people live in that place and so by understanding their lens and their perspective. And, and I didn't bring him here to fetch coffee. Yes. I brought, and you wouldn't believe the work ethic. You wouldn't believe that they were here six, seven in the morning and, and they left five, six at nights and they just the commitment and the work ethic. And you never had to ask them to do something twice and the initiative they took. And now I'm wondering, oh my Lord, they're graduating more honor students than we're graduating students. And how will we remain relevant and competitive if that's what we're competing with? Well, I'm thinking about the themes in your book, Curve Benders. This is almost one of those ways to bend the curve, isn't it? To take the, well, you were talking about not only the empathy and understanding of the worldview, but maybe having more creative options. You know, that if you can't ship it, you can't fly it. Well, what are they doing in uh, Germany? What are they doing in Brazil? What are they doing in, you know, China? <laughs> You, know. you bring up a great you bring up a great point. One of the one of my my uh, assertions, Mark, for the last two decades has been beyond your academic foundation, beyond your professional pedigree, your biggest asset is actually your portfolio of relationships. Hmm. And one of the the most underutilized, one of the least accessed value elements of your relationship is something I call uh, leveraging relationships as signal scouts. So if you build relationships across the value chain and across geographies, they can identify faint market signals that they bring back to you. And you get, a, you get, a, you get one data point, you're thinking, hey, that's interesting. You get two, there's a line. You get three, there's a trend. And you're exactly right. At the onset of this pandemic, one of the things that I did was I made a list of my top 100 business relationships. Some clients, some prospects, colleagues, thought leaders. And I, and I literally went down the list and, and I started calling them. And, and for your younger listeners, telephone is this antiquated device where you actually <laughs> hit numbers and people pick up. And so, right. And, and, I, and I didn't sell them anything. It was just, how are you doing? And what are you doing? And what are you seeing? And what are you struggling with? And what are you excited about? And, and how are you guys dealing with people not coming into an office every day? And how are you communicating or keeping everybody on the same page? And you hear about daily huddles and you hear about these now collaboration tools. And organizations that were not video cultures suddenly became go to meeting and teams and zoom experts. And so those relationships became an incredible sources of insights about what was happening, not in Atlanta where I live and I can see, and I can, but exactly right in Berlin and in Dubai and in, you know, Midwest. And here's a client in Huntsville who's struggling with something that a client in Kentucky could solve. And I became a, what I believe in deeply, which is a purveyor of relationships. And I started to connect seekers and solvers. This guy needs PPEs. This guy's some got some extras. Let's get them together. Let's get them. She's laying off talent. She needs talent. I wonder if the two of them could talk to each other. And not, not for a transactional purpose, but as you were kind enough to mention, exactly what I've captured in my books over the years 
relationships as the connective tissue to accelerate our ability to get things done. Oh, very cool. Well, you mentioned you're working on your next one. So you've moved from relationships to co-creation and curve bending. What's on the horizon for you, David? Oddly enough, I have about seven, eight different books in my head in various stages. And uh, you and your audience would be delighted to hear I'm not writing Harry Potter, right? So I'm, I'm never going to get wealthy <laughs> writing books. I just, and, and, and at some point you're like, you know, why am I doing this? Like, it's like somebody hits you with a two by four and you're like, whack, thank you. May I have another, yes. right? It's just- Did I, you I wake I need, up from the dream where they were lined up around the block to pick I up the no, book? I, yeah. I, just, I feel like I need professional help. Let's just leave it at that, right? But I, but I love doing it. And, and my grandfather published 25 books. And I feel like in some ways I've got big shoes to fill. But mm -hmm. so, so books for me take about four years roughly to percolate, to research. I have six grad students that do a lot of social science research for me. I interview typically a lot of executives and I capture when I see, as I mentioned, you see a point, you're like, well, that's interesting. Two become a line, three become a trend. When I see very different size, geography, industry clients struggle with very similar issues. The light bulb goes off, typically in forms of, a, of, a, of questions. And it's like, I wonder, or what if, or what, what does that look like? And, I, and I've become, and I've always been this way. I'm very, I'm genuinely curious. So I kind of followed that thread and, and it leads to Pandora's box in some ways. And at some point you've read enough, you've researched enough, you've talked enough, you've, you've, coached, spoken enough about a topic where you feel like you have something to say. Uh, and I got to tell you, and, and people hear curve benders or, or read it and they think this was very timely. You Did you write this with the pandemic? Did I write it? Yeah, but I started it you know, several years ago. And uh, yeah, you may have heard of shifting the curve, but I've been thinking about this linear and nonlinear growth curve for some time. And that's what that's referring to. But one thing that this pandemic, so I'm going to give you a couple of ideas. One thing that this pandemic has brought front and center for a lot of my clients is how woefully unprepared we were. Mm -hmm. And particularly leaders, their resilience quotient wasn't where it needs to be. And one, you know, one leader I had a, a fantastic conversation with, and, and I described resilience to this person as elasticity. So ideal if you prepare well in advance, you embrace the difficulties, the challenges, embrace the suck, excuse the expression, but as you go through it, it accelerates your path through it and you're dramatically stronger because of it on the other side. So one example is, can you imagine if we didn't have internet access the last 18 mm -hmm. months? Mm -hmm. I think we'd be in even a bigger hole than we are today. So, and yet cybersecurity and cyber risk is, is almost every leader's biggest fear that it's not a matter of if, it's when it's gonna happen to you. What if it takes out, you know, takes out our grid? I don't care how fast your internet access is without power. You're not getting anywhere. Right. No. So, you know, I love electric cars, but without power, we're not getting anywhere. Right. So God forbid, what if it's a natural disaster? What if the next one is another one of these black swan events that we know are going to happen? We just don't know when or where or how they're going to happen. So I'm writing, I'm thinking a lot about, I'm reading a lot about right now that, that resilience quotient, what is it? How do you build it? How do you institutionalize it? How do you really develop it in your culture? Along the same lines, I'm, I'm, really, I'm really curious about this idea of relevance. I don't believe it's a point in time. It's, it's, a, it's a continuum. You have to remain relevant. So if the market, and Jack Welsh used to say this, which 
when the rate of change outside your organization outpaces the rate of change within your organization, the end is near. So if the rate of change outside the organization accelerates dramatically, how will you remain relevant? And, mm-hmm. and we've seen the Blackberries, we've seen the Sears Roebuck, we've seen the Kodaks, we've seen the Nokias. I mean, just Blockbuster, I mean, on and on and on. And I would submit their demise was because they, they neglected to, to remain relevant. So I'm thinking a lot about relevance. I'm thinking a lot about this resilience. I'm thinking a lot about evolution of work and what it means to, what it means to work in a micro enterprise. So those are just some of the ideas that are, that are twirling around. I love it. Well, listeners, we've gained so much from our conversation. David Noor has been my guest. David, I can't thank you enough for being on the program. Mark, thank you for having me. And I hope you and your audience got some value from our conversation. Well, no question. I think we've embraced a lot of creative thoughts, but as you underscored a bit ago, that moving from these thoughts to action, you know, and putting innovation to work, it's really important. Uh, absolutely. And I, and, I, and I tell most people I have a bias for action. So, mm-hmm. so what you really need is the elevator ride of a theoretical construct. Where does that come from? application, what does that look like? And then implementation. How do we go apply that idea in our world to make it relevant, to make it valuable and kind of what we're trying to do? So yeah, absolutely. I'm a big believer of you have to bridge ideas to then how do we take advantage of those? How do we make sure they happen? Yeah, definitely. Well, thanks for sharing these thoughts. And even more important, your creative spirit, your energy behind those ideas. And listeners, you're going to love the book, Curve Benders, but also, you know, stay up to date. David also publishes blogs. He's on podcasts. He does a podcast. So his website is Noor Group. So that's N-O-U-R group.com. And you're going to want to stay in touch with David. Appreciate your time, David. Enjoyed our conversation so much. Mark, my pleasure. And listeners, come back again next time. We're going to continue our around-the-world journeys here. Uh, We've been talking about having a worldview, and that's exactly what we try to espouse on the podcast. We want to talk to people from Johannesburg to Oslo and from Rio de Janeiro to Singapore to get the best of the ideas and the best of creativity around the world. So come and join us again for our next episode. Until then, I'm Mark Stenson. We've been unlocking your world of creativity. We'll see you next time. Unlocking your world of creativity with best-selling author and brand innovator, Mark Stinson. This program was produced by BSB Media, creators of IntelliKey Leadership Stories, Unlocking Your World of Creativity, and thepeaceroom.love. We've created a special offer just for listeners of the podcast. You can get the book, A World of Creativity, for a special price of $5.98 for paperback. And the Kindle version is only 99 cents. Go to mark-stinson.com to take advantage of this special offer. Our podcast is supported by Adobe and the Adobe Creative Cloud, the world's best creative app and services, so you can make almost anything you can imagine wherever you're inspired. We use Adobe to help make this podcast, using Audition, Premiere Rush, InDesign, and more. So join the creative community with the Adobe Creative Cloud, and let's make something better, unlocking your world of creativity.